Hello and welcome to the Fast Break Podcast. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined by a full house here. Got Dan Madigan, Patrick Martin, and Sean McGrath, who we have rescued from the underwater bunker that he was in during our last podcast. Sean, thank you for getting out of there. It was a top secret location, uh, a very secure site, but we were lucky to have Sean on the last one. And uh, now he's back above ground. Sean, welcome back. Thank you. Very, very happy to be in a disclosed location in New Jersey rather than a dis- undisclosed location in New Jersey. Yeah. And, and we can't say actually even much more about where you were before. Uh, but again, lucky that we had you on the podcast while you were gone. Sean, uh, UConn played two games, one against DePaul, one against Georgetown, both on the road. They got the win um in both which which we're happy about uh there are some some butts there maybe to consider uh thoughts thoughts following the stretch uh of DePaul Georgetown action Madigan we'll start with you I think it just goes to show that this team is really more up and down than any UConn team that I can think of in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, we've seen the heights that this team can hit during the PKI earlier in the season, starting the season off 14 0. Uh, and we've seen the lows, right? And I feel like during this DePaul game, we kind of saw both at the same time. Uh, for the most part, UConn was in cruise control handling DePaul. And then DePaul got within six or seven, I want to say. And just based on the experience of watching this team this season, it's kind of you know the that that deficit is not going to stay at that amount. It's it's they're not going to maintain it. It's either DePaul is going to come back, tie this up, and, and make it really interesting, or UConn could rip off a run and kind of put them away. So UConn fortunately did that and avoided a not a great loss. That that would have been a pretty tough loss if they fell to DePaul on the road. But the biggest thing for me between this game and I know we'll talk about it when we get into Georgetown is what Tristan Newton has done lately. Like he's just taken it to another level. He's been so much more aggressive. Um, I think, you know, between the stuff that I've written at the blog or, or, or anything that I put out there, I think I was harder on him than most at the beginning of the season until I really realized what the position that he was kind of put in by the coaching staff. He's playing out of position. He's really not a true point guard. He's a scoring guard, off-ball type player who's had the ball in his hands a lot. And I think as we've gotten through the middle of Big East play, he's kind of taken that to heart gone back to his roots. He's been super aggressive getting to the free throw line in all these games. Since the St. John's game where he had no points, and I saw an article he told Dave Borges that he basically like wasn't feeling right, whether he was sick or, or something like that. He didn't feel like himself. So we throw that game out. He's had six attempts or more in basically uh, from the free throw line in basically every game up until the Georgetown game today. So he's had eight for eight from the free throw line, nine for 11 from the free throw line, five for six, six for six. He's really good at getting to the line, drawing fouls, and hitting free throws. And he just basically abandoned that for six or eight games during the middle of the year, during UConn's losing streak for whatever reason. Uh, But now that he's gotten back to it, he's playing a lot better. He scored double figures in his last five games. And I think that's a big reason why UConn is kind of slowly but surely trending back in the right direction. And even though he didn't really get to the line against Georgetown, he had six assists to one turnover. Like, that's really important for your ball-dominant guard. Even if he's playing out of position, he's learning how to do it. And six assists to one turnover is a great line. 
that's something that he's going to have to keep doing because there's no one else who can really handle the ball for any kind of extended period of time. And he's shown he can do it. Yeah. Um, look, and let's not forget two road wins and, and, and that's not nothing in the big East regard. You know, I know they were, you know, DePaul and Georgetown who are, you know, the, the doormats of the, of the league, but they picked up two road wins, Dan Hurley, prove that he can win that close game that has so often eluded him uh, by, you know, closing out Georgetown, preventing DePaul from getting too close. And yeah, however, you know, by taking care of those games, it has solidified the narrative that like in the top five teams in the conference, they are one in five versus the bottom five teams. They are six in one. So at some point that's not, that's, you know, Tristan Newton emerging is great, but you got to do it against the top five. Um, so him now facing probably, you know, better athletes uh, will be interesting to see if he can get to the line and draw the same kind of contact where, you know, against teams like Georgetown and, and DePaul and Seton Hall, he could kind of rely on just his size and his craftiness. Now he's going to be facing some better athletes that will be able to defend him a little bit. And, hopefully he you know continues to at least crack double fig you know double figures because if he doesn't if you kind of show that there's not a lot of offensive firepower that they can rely on besides Jordan Hawkins and Adama Sonogo. And for me it was just that they were really getting nothing from their guards for for that stretch too which which was a huge concern and I think with Newton agree you want to see it against good teams I, I thought he played well against against Xavier as well um, so some hints that, that he's, he's maybe found something which, which will be big going forward as well, uh, especially with Marquette, the Marquette game coming up. I think also just with Newton, uh, looking at the Georgetown game and his performance there a little bit more closely, he just hit some big buckets. You know, he just took the ball, drove and took an uncomfortable shot and scored. And that's something that, you know, RJ Cole did a lot last year. That's something that UConn guards on winning teams do a lot. And uh, that made me feel better because again, before they were really getting nothing from the guards. I still am concerned about how this does play out against better teams. Those were Georgetown was way too close for comfort. You know, I'm not, DePaul was, was, was better, but uh, you know, Georgetown again, held a lead in the second half. Obviously this was, for a much shorter amount of time, but Georgetown really kept it competitive the whole way. Um, my understanding is that this must be a defensive issue. If you're letting a Georgetown Hoyas roster that looks like what it looks like shoot at uh, mid forties uh, percentages. Uh, what do we feel about the defense? Any other reasons for concern given, given their performance lately? The, the defense is definitely sliding. I have just been looking at Ken Palm when we're doing those, uh those weekly ap poll articles right like for it started like i think when they were 14 and 0 they were like 10th or 7th in defensive efficiency last week they were 15th this week they're 20th so it, it is sliding we can see it and for whatever reason maybe the offense is is rising up just enough but it's balancing out in ken palm where yukon's not really moving around they've just been at six for what feels like forever uh it's been almost a month now um but you can just tell that the the rotations aren't there i feel like the difference between having Sonogo and Klingon, uh, 
in changes how the team plays defense, but sometimes they, I feel like they don't adjust. Like Sonogo is a pretty solid defender. He's not an Isaiah Whaley type or, or the shot blocker that Donovan Klingon is, but he's pretty good at, at post defense, post defense. And he can alter some shots and usually limits people to one shot on, on defense. Right. But um, they still kind of funnel folks into him. Like they do when they had Isaiah Whaley last year or when they had Donovan Klingon last year. And the, everything just looks out of sorts when it gets to the paint. And it's been really frustrating at times. I feel like the backcourt defense has been really hit or miss. Um, Andre Jackson is, is in the shortlist for the defensive player of the year awards, but um, I don't know if that really stands up based on the eye test. He's had flashes where he's been a lockdown perimeter guy um, like we've seen uh, early in his career, but it hasn't always been like that. So I think this team is really trying to find a balance between being too aggressive um, we've, we know the foul issues that this team has run into. Um, I feel like they just aren't super focused all the time on defense and they get burned on, on very basic stuff that really has never been an issue for Hurley at UConn. I think, uh, you know, one of the problems is, you know, you have this elite nationally elite ball, you know, on ball defender of Andre Jackson with a lot, everyone else who's just kind of okay. Uh, you know, a lot of length, a lot of athletes. Without Andre Jackson, you almost want to say like stick with the one three one or, or show some two three zone. But if you there's no point in putting Andre Jackson in a two three zone. He is a man to man defender. So they're they're stuck where like they 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 teams especially well coached teams in the Big East can pick out a weakness and just not you know, let someone else beat them besides whoever Andre Jackson is guarding. You know he's he held Primo Spears to zero points and Georgetown still had you know, got what they wanted a lot. So I think it's, it's bizarre to see like little small things, like they are abused on every single screen, like any kind of ball screen, there is so much separation, whether it's, you know, they're not, they're, they're not timing their switches. They're not fighting through if they need to fight through. Um, And it, if they're pressuring too much, there's just a lot of stuff that, you know, for a Dan Hurley defense that you expect to be so attuned to those details, there's re- it's, it's it's not there. Um, and it's disconcerting because that's the type of thing that, for especially a new team with a lot of new pieces, you think that was supposed to be something that got better as the season went along. It's it's regressed. Uh, now, hopefully there's the bottom and, and, you know, there's a leveling out period, but the, the clock is ticking. It's you know, February 6th, it's, it's time for that defense to find an identity. And Hurley's talked about that a couple of times post game, how there's no defensive identity there. And yeah, I think that's going to be a real issue. I mean, Marquette, and we can talk about this coming up, but they are, they are elite on offense. You know, Tyler Kolick is maybe the best point guard in America. And with how Shaka Smart runs screens and everything like that, they can get abused even if it's like a home court game. So yeah, that has me very, you know, on edge about this coming week, especially too with Creighton then on Saturday. Yeah. I'm a little worried about this Marquette game as well. I believe this was the game when, when they played in Milwaukee that they opened up with, what was it? Patrick held me out here three or four, maybe five straight possessions, just attacking Alex Caravan on, on when Marquette had the ball on offense. And, um, you know, Caravan is such a good offensive player for this team. He just won freshman of the week. He's been a lights out three point shooter. You can't say like, oh, he's not, you know, he shouldn't be on the court because 
he brings so much to the offense that you're willing to put up with some of that. I do wonder that if Samson Johnson being healthy and, and available is going to change some of that, some of those defensive issues that they've had, especially at that position. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, he's been available for four games. He's only played in three. He hasn't played more than seven minutes yet and didn't play really at all in the DePaul game, even when UConn was up by um, more than double digits for, for good stretches. So I'm interested to see how they work Johnson back. I think, especially for games like this against these elite offenses and Marquette and Creighton, you need someone with his length and athleticism to kind of go out there and disrupt, especially with so many uh, players that could give Caravan trouble at that three and four position. So that's something that I'm looking for. I don't think this means that Johnson's going to play, you know, 15, 20 minutes to, uh, tomorrow against Marquette. But I think if he can come in for stretches and maybe stop the bleeding, him with Jackson, um, Sonogo or Klingon, that's so much length, right? That can disrupt what Marquette has. They don't have a ton of size, but they do have a lot of athletes and a lot of scorers. So um, maybe that's a key. Maybe that's me being pretty optimistic because Johnson got a lot of praise from Hurley, a lot of praise from the staff, but he really hasn't shown anything that he can be a defensive player, uh, an, an impactful defensive player yet in games. Yeah, the Johnson thing's been weird to me because he hasn't real his minutes haven't really gone up as he's come back. You would think that they would want to mix him in more, especially with Caravan. Uh, he's been a liability defensively. You guys brought it up, Marquette. He was just they went right to him, right after him, right after him, right after him, and they got some easy, easy buckets. And Shaka Smart, he's a smart guy. You're going to you're going, he's going to do that again. So playing Samson Johnson more than five minutes is something that is, that is definitely something that should happen. And it was, it was very strange that they didn't play him against the Paul. He really shortened the really, really shortened the bench against the Paul. Uh, Klingon played 19 and Aline played 23, but you only got five minutes from Tiara, five minutes from Samson Johnson and three minutes from Joey Calcaterra. So I, I thought that that was strange. Yeah, I think that's a part of a larger issue that maybe we can unpack closer to March where Hurley, and I think you've gotten to this, Sean, I don't have the exact numbers to back this up, but just from watching the games, you can tell that Hurley really clamps down on his rotation uh, when things are close, when things start to matter more. I think he did the same thing with this DePaul game, same thing with this Georgetown game when it got a little too close for comfort, but something that we need to look into, I think, heading into the tournament because it's interesting. And I think, you know, two, three months ago when the UConn bench was playing as well as it was, it was something that probably never crossed anyone's mind. But now, given how the bench is playing, it wouldn't be crazy to see in a tight game, if, if depending on how the opponent is, is structured, whether there's a lot of guys in the front court, I could easily see Hurley rolling with like six or seven guys, Klingon being that sixth guy, and maybe a lean or Diara putting in 10, 12 minutes. Like I, I could see him going like almost Geno style and, and using seven people to try and, and get through a game and gut it out because I feel like the bench hasn't really done anything lately to earn any more minutes than what they're getting. But Madigan, weren't they supposed to win the Big East? No, the American. They were they were they were gonna storm <laughs> the American. Well, the Big East was not no, people were thinking at the beginning of the season the Big East might not be that good. So I think there there maybe was some sentiment that that was possible. But yeah, that is absolutely I think something we should talk about, which is about this team not not being as deep as we thought um, 
in let's say late November uh, or or maybe even as deep as we thought like a month ago uh Joey Calcaterra has not uh done much after lighting our spirits on fire uh early in the season and uh yeah Yukon is is frequently uh getting getting just trounced on bench points not that it's like the most important stat in the world but um it it does mean one thing when it's happening all the time and you're not getting much from them. So uh, that is a huge piece of it just in general Um, for this UConn team as a whole. It's like Sonogo and Hawkins have to lead the way. Someone else has to step up in a kind of consistent way. And still we don't even really know who, who UConn would, I think we know who UConn would want taking the last shot, but I don't know if that person would take the last shot uh, or, or if UConn could get that last shot to him. That's Jordan Hawkins to me. Uh, but we haven't seen it. I've seen a lot of really poor late, late clock execution. I'm hoping it's anecdotal and just my silly brain, but I, I think I've seen it a lot in like late, late shot clock and end of half and end of game situations. Uh, and uh, you know, those that's kind of where the, where the hole is for me. It, and the team is, the team's depth is an issue. Newton emerging being a big part of changing that at least. Wait, so you're telling me you don't want to see an Andre Jackson floater with 20 seconds left? Oof, man, that Xavier start, you know, like, you know, the you make a game plan for a game. Could anything go better than the guy you're saying, give this guy as many shots as he wants, and he takes seven shots in the first four minutes? Oh, my goodness. You know, that was just like uh, – T- tough game to understand and comprehend uh given how it started and how it ended but wild wild stuff you have to be not doing that so it's you know similar to the marquette thing yukon just has weaknesses that can be like really attacked is, yeah, well, is that, another kind of issue that's one thing you brought up the bench and <clears throat> i think the bench is a bunch of specialized weapons you know you bring in joey calcaterra for shooting and spacing the floor he ain't giving you nothing else. You bring in Hassan Diar for on-ball defense and a little bit of ball handling, kind of cross your fingers there. Um, nothing else. Even Samson Johnson, you're bringing in for length and offensive rebounding. Beyond Donovan Klingon, and we can get into him later, that's it. So when one of those things aren't working against a improved conference, they get exposed. And I think from no, you know, the November, December stretch, it was masked by just a period of play where everyone happened to be firing and there wasn't any of those weaknesses that were exposed. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's easy to look at how the team is now and be like, Oh, like why didn't Hurley get another point guard in the portal or why, why isn't there a, you know, a more complete guard off the bench that can eat up minutes like a, you know, obviously Jalen Gaffney transferred, but like my mind, drifts right to that that type of player right maybe not the best offensive player but somebody that can come in be a microwave scorer for a little bit and and handle the ball but um I don't think anyone could have predicted the bench guards kind of all hitting in the first 14 games of the season and then all kind of falling off a cliff these last uh you know 10 or so games it's just been unbelievable uh you know Naheem Aline was a guy who was shooting 40 percent in the ACC for the last three years and hasn't been able to get anything to fall this season. Calcaterra started off red hot at the beginning of the year. He's struggling now. 
Uh, Hassan Diara has been okay, but his his game is much more kind of being that spark plug defensively. So it's hard to really gauge what he's bringing uh, in in other areas. But it's just so weird to me that I think Hurley kind of banked on being able to lean on Calcaterra or Aline on any given night and, and just kind of pick the hot hand and roll with that. And, you know, they each have their their strengths and their flaws, but it's just so weird to me that they're both kind of in this lull right now. And there's still plenty of time for them to come up, you know, pop out of it. Aline hit a three against Georgetown. It was the, you know, I, I think it kind of gave him a little bit of confidence and I know Calcaterra hit one too, but hopefully that's all it takes to just get these guys going. Because if even just one of them can be a reliable three point shooter, um, that it opens up the, the game for UConn tremendously. Yeah, I think also the problem is, though, DePaul, Georgetown, this kind of portion of the cupcake schedule, that was supposed to be where a lot of those players got untracked. You know, if if you're blowing out Georgetown by 15 or 20, that's when you throw in Diara and Calcaterra and say, make something happen. Or was it the George? Yeah, it was the Georgetown game where it was a lineup of Diara, Calcaterra, Aline, uh, Samson Johnson, and somebody else, I think, one of the starters. And they promptly let Georgetown back in the game. It was a, you know, it clearly, like, you should have, sprint, you know, rotated those subs in instead of just basically doing a hockey change. That was their time almost to get it going. When will you kind of have a chance to blow somebody out the way they're playing again and giving those guys meaningful reps to get into a rhythm and gain some momentum? I, I You can't really see that. Maybe maybe Seton Hall at home. I don't know. So, like, where is it going to come from besides some, you know, miracle, hit your first shot, get some momentum and, and build with that? But that's that's asking a lot for 18 and 19-year-olds to have that kind of sustained confidence with maybe in five or 10-minute spurts. Yeah. No, I, I think that's fair. And I think the only pushback that I would have to that, and it's not a lot of pushback, but that's the beauty of the transfer portal, right, is that these guys are not – you know, true freshmen, true sophomores. Aline is almost 22 years old. Calcaterra's in his on his fifth year at San Diego. Like these are guys that have been through it. They've played a lot of minutes. They know what it's like, especially Aline, what it takes to kind of be an impact player come March, come late February. So I think the hope is kind of what you said, Patrick. Like Aline comes in the game at the under 16. He hits a three. He hits an open jumper, and it's kind of like that switch just flips back on for him. I think that's really the only option at this point because they're not playing at a level where they can rely on uh, getting those guys some garbage time to kind of shoot their way back into shape. Yeah, I mean, the answer to that question is probably March 1st when Marquette, or not Marquette, DePaul arrives to Connecticut. That's their last shot. I mean, they finish, they've got Creighton on Tuesday or Marquette at home, Creighton on the road. Seton Hall and Providence are no slouches. They go to the Garden, and then it's DePaul, and then they go to Philly to play Villanova, and then it's Big East tournament time. It's going to be a tough sledding the rest of the way. I think they can get some wins, but you're not going to be looking at too too much garbage time there. I think Hurley did do a, you know you you have to give him some credit for just giving those people a a, a blowout there, you know, a, a shot to make something happen. Uh, those were the games to do it. This is the time to do it. It still is um, early February and uh, still a bit of time to work on the optimal lineup. I think we know what that looks like and what that approach looks like for UConn, including 
I think they have the opportunity defensively to mix more press uh, into it when they need to against a, a better team to really fluster them. And I also think we've, we've kind of, we, we touched on this a little bit in the last podcast, but um, Donovan clinging, Donovan clinging, seeing more time and seeing more time alongside Adama Sonogo. I think those are the things where UConn is, is clearly at its best. And uh, we still haven't seen kind of like the full bloom of what, of what all of that could be. Yeah. I think Klingon's going to be the key against Marquette. Um, you'll read this in the preview, but Klingon had a, had a big game against Marquette the first time out. Um, he, he, ha- he was a micro scorer. He had, he 21 minutes, 20 points, 10, 10 rebounds, five blocks and two steals. He was eight of 11 from the field. Marquette, Madigan mentioned this earlier. Marquette, doesn't really have much size. He was, he uh, based on what Marquette's got guys listed at, he's five inches taller and 35 pounds heavier than everyone else. That is a massive, massive advantage. And this is one of the games where he actually played more than Sonogo did. Um, Hurley was still using them as a true platoon, but he played 21 minutes to Sonogo's 19. So if Klingon can reprise his performance, then that's something that will help UConn take the home win for sure. Do we see some double bigs tomorrow? You think? I don't um, know. I I think this is a tough lineup to do it against. Like, maybe I I don't I don't know who that third guy would be. I just feel like if Stenogo and Klingon are playing together, then that just means that one of like Igadaro or Olivier Maxens Prosper is just going at Caravan, and they're just pulling everyone out, and it's just like old school NBA ISO ball, like trying to get a bucket. Like, I, I don't know if you can, can do that. I know Sonogo had trouble, uh, a little bit of trouble with Igadaro and, and Joplin at times um, throughout this game. So I think we'll see Klingon for more. I hope we see it just because he's such a different look. Um, but I think, you know, we're going to need a, UConn's going to need a strong game from, from both bigs, honestly, to, to stay in this. And it's going to be a lot of like, riding the hot hand and hoping that neither of them get into foul trouble early because I, I think they're both going to be pretty important down the stretch. Yeah, Igodaro wasn't terribly efficient. Uh, he had 16 shots, but he scored 19. And in college basketball, that's going to help make a big difference. On a, on a slightly separate note, uh, I, I can't help but, you know, just reflecting on, on the most recent game, attending uh, – at the Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C. If we're just talking about home environments within the Big East, that has got to be the worst one by far, not even close. It, it was the first time in my life I was having flashbacks to the 2016 AAC tournament in Orlando at the Amway Center. That was the general vibe that I was reminded of at the Georgetown game this past weekend, which is a very sad and and troubling place to be if if you are Georgetown. None of the fans knew when to cheer. Uh, a lot of times, uh, UConn fans would be holding up the like Georgetown giveaway T-shirt that they would be giving, and then reveal that they had a UConn UConn gear underneath uh, because there were certainly more UConn fans than than Georgetown fans at this game. Uh, I can tell you for a fact that Georgetown University routinely begs its students to attend home men's basketball games uh, by giving them free tickets via email uh, and still not getting anyone to go attend 
their games. It is and was the lamest home environment I have seen in a very, very long time. And that is, that is sad. It was, it was pretty rough. I had the opportunity to visit beautiful capital one arena uh, this weekend as well. Um, Nice arena, but yeah, the environment was just a nightmare. It was unbelievable. Um, I would say it was at least 50, 50 UConn to Georgetown fans, probably more, like you said. Um, And it, it really just was dead the whole time, which was crazy. Um, I don't want to give, don't want to get Providence off the hook here. Their women's basketball gym, whatever you want to call it. That is by far the worst. Like we can't just let that slide, but uh, at least they play at a real arena. So um, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad though. It was one of the more lame environments that I think I've ever been to. A favorite of me and also my wife was the band member with the large, this is sad banner. <laughs> just straight into the point made us all it was made us both chuckle it was sad i feel bad for our boy a cook a cook madigan <laughs> uh, just just i was gonna bring that up yeah uh it, it looked like actually speaking of of defense um i i'm i'm not the biggest x's and o's guy but i i did think i saw caravan guarding a cook most of the time when he was out there uh and a cook only had three points so um, you know, maybe, maybe caravan's got a little improving defense thing going, or maybe a cook's not that great offensively, uh, anymore. That's, that's what I have heard from, uh, people at Georgetown. He's playing well defensively, not so much, not so much of an offensive threat. So, right. He had the block that, um, that Andre Jackson got the offensive rebound from and, and kicked out to caravan. Obviously that caused a whole Twitter storm about, whether that was a good pass or not, <laughs> but the, uh, but it was a cook, a cook that was there that, that blocked it. So it's good to see him hanging around, but yeah, what a, what a dumpster fire. Georgetown. Yeah. A tough place to end up. Obviously. Uh, if you look at that roster, it's an absolute laugh riot. I was, I remember telling you guys earlier, like, you know, a player who was there transferred away and transferred back. Kudus Wahab. What is up? Multiple NBA players' sons on the roster. Classic Georgetown. A lot of good stuff here. You know, a lot of uh, like a lot of high major washouts, kind of like a cook, a cook. Um, And uh, yeah, Uh, I I remain concerned that that Georgetown game was close, uh, but uh, I feel a lot better that nobody who roots for Georgetown sports ever feels joy in their lives when they think about their basketball team. And so that at least makes me feel a little better. Yeah. I mean, it, it was close. It was a six point win, but just being in the arena and maybe it was because it was dead silent the entire game. It, it never really felt like UConn was like totally out of it or that Georgetown was ever really in control. Even when Georgetown had the lead, it did feel like UConn was, a bucket away from kind of getting things back in order. Um, But not the best thing to see. Definitely not reassuring heading into a, a matchup against a top, uh, you know, a top 10 team, or I think Marquette's 10 or 11 now. Um, So not ideal, but a win is a win. Two road wins is not nothing like Patrick said. Any other thoughts and or feelings heading into the Marquette game? All right. That is going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.